Hello, and welcome to the Hamden Library Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Pieri. In honor of Black History Month, teen librarian Jenny Nicolelli interviewed two of her former colleagues from the New Haven Free Public Library to talk about their careers as librarians. First, you'll hear Jenny talk with Marion Huggins, branch manager of the Mitchell Library. Then you will hear her interview with Diane X. Brown, branch manager of Stetson Library. These are great talks, especially if you have ever considered entering the field of librarianship and want to get a sense of what it's really like. But first, I want to alert our listeners to a great opportunity coming up later this year. In celebration of Juneteenth, the Hamden Public Library is hosting our first African-American all-ages read-in. On Saturday, June 15th at the Miller Memorial Library, honor more than 400 years of African writing by sharing your voice and reading aloud the words of your favorite African-American author, poet, essayist, or speechwriter. Readers will have up to 20 minutes to read before the community. Children, teens, and adults are all welcome to read. Volunteers are also needed for hospitality and preparation. If you're interested, please call the library for more information. So, Marion Huggins, thank you so much for joining with me today uh, to tell us about your career as a librarian. Um, can you, for our listeners, go ahead and introduce yourself? Um, tell us a little bit about your current job as a librarian. Like Jenny said, I'm Marion Huggins. I'm the branch manager at the Mitchell branch of the New Haven Free Public Library. I've been a branch manager for the past three years. Before that, I was the community outreach librarian at the Wilson branch. And before that, I was part-time downtown at the main branch. And before that, I was a part-time library aide at West Haven Library. So the past, since 2015, I've been in librarianship. Um, Before that, I worked 26 years at the U.S. Postal Service. I just, I guess I always wanted to work in libraries. I, I always loved reading and every librarian says this. I always loved reading, but there's a lot more to being a librarian than thinking about reading. Sometimes you don't even have time for reading. Um, but I guess it's the love of books that makes you want to be in a place where you're surrounded by books and seeing the patrons check books in and out, um, ordering books, reading books. Um, I do wish that in library school that there was more emphasis on the social services side of librarianship. Um, I, I just think that the instructors need to let people know that, yes, you can love books, but if you don't love people, it's not going to work out for you. <laughs> That's basically all I can say about that. I started library science courses while I was still working. I, I took courses part-time for probably 10 years before I got the MLS. Um, some courses had been obsolete and I had to go back and find the renames and, and apply to have those courses, you know, count towards my graduation. It, it was a hard road, but eventually I was able to retire from the postal service and came into librarianship. When I was a kid growing up, I loved to go to the library, but the library wasn't really in my neighborhood. It was a hike. And um, the people who worked there, in my opinion, were not engaging. 
Um, they all seem to be just looking down at whatever it is that they were doing. And, and that's another thing that they need to talk about in library schools, to look up at the people, greet people when they walk in. Some people do want to be left alone, but they'll let you know, you know, yeah. you say, hi, can, you know, is there anything you might need? And they'll go, oh, no, I'm just browsing. And, and, you know, at least you've opened the door. When I was in library school, I did like a practicum, which most people do. And one of the practicums that I did had to do with collection development at the main library. And Diane Brown was actually my mentor on that project. Um, and that was probably the only cohort that I had. A lot of people in my classes had already worked in libraries, so they knew, at least they had the experience, but they didn't really work in inner city libraries. Right. It's a different experience. Can, um, so for full disclosure, Marion and I worked together briefly because I used to be employed with the New Haven Free Public Library System, but I was at a different branch, but we got to see each other on Fridays at the main library in New Haven. Um, so, Marion, that's actually a, a great segue because Mitchell is such an interesting branch. You brought up reading um, and patrons loving books, and you have a very you have a really literary and and um, I would say extremely engaged community at Mitchell. But you also spoke to the social services piece. The and you're, you just brought up um, being in an inner city library system. Um, so I guess my question is, at, at Mitchell, you have a balance there because you have a really engaged reading population, but you're also still in New Haven and you're also still serving the public who have needs that are far beyond reading. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Well, every Friday we go downtown, just like you and I used to meet every Friday downtown. It's very different than Mitchell. Every Friday there may be a person overdosed in the bathroom or there might be a fight or there might be teens vaping and and there seems to be a need to call the guards like at least four times a day. At Mitchell, we don't have those problems because this is a reader's, it's a small community. Just, just numbers alone makes the difference. But what we do have is a lot of people who need to print something off their phone, or they need to apply for social security on the computer, or they need um, to print out their tax forms or, or job applications. There's Even though it's a reader's library, there is a large part of it, which is just making copies, printing out documents, showing people how to set up a Gmail address. Some of it is very, very basic, and, and I really... At least when I went to library school, they didn't talk about anything like that. Like, you're going to spend a great deal of time just showing somebody how to use the copy machine. Um, yesterday, I had a lady who, who just needed some things faxed. And absolutely. So, like you said, you know, Mitchell may not have some of the security concerns as downtown, but all of those social services needs, because that's really what all of those are. And I agree with you. I, I didn't have any experience of no one explained to me what I was actually going to be doing at a, at a service desk in a library, <laughs> in library school. I totally agree with you. Um, and so it's, it's absolutely, you are as the face of Mitchell, you're, you are like this, this first 
frontline person who may be doing things like you said that seem really simple but are vital to people's survival in you know in new haven it's true it's true it is not a luxury it's a necessity you know when your whole income is going to depend on getting this piece of paper faxed but um but in library school they need to emphasize that it's not just about books or databases it really is a lot about helping people day to day. And if you think you're too good to stand at a copy machine with a person, it might not be the career for you. Absolutely. Um, and that's a, that's a really good segue. You spoke a lot about, um, you know, kind of your, your previous career in the postal service, kind of getting the MLS degree as you could, um, and then working with Diane Brown, who will be interviewing later for the episode. Did you have moments when you, you know, when you were able to transition to working in libraries, you know, and away from the postal service and and retire from there? Did you have moments where you're like, I don't know if this is the career I want, you know? I I 100% did. I won, especially when I was at Wilson. The only thing that I could say about Wilson, another small community, but surrounded by halfway houses, um, a drug treatment facility. I can't think of what it's called, but it was a place where they gave out. um, Oh, like the methadone clinic. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. All day, every day there, there were issues with basically with people who were high. Um, And people came from all over the state to come to the methadone clinic in New Haven because they had either got kicked out of programs in their own town or their own town didn't provide it. So we were just surrounded by people who needed a different kind of help. I understand now they have a Liberty Community Service representative. Um, but at the time that I was there, they didn't. But even in spite of that, you still had, you had your people who wanted that James Patterson book. And, and that, that was your light through the day. Do you have the new book by Clive Cussler? Do you have the new book by Patterson, by Daniel Steele? You know, and then I had the opportunity because I'm more interested in African-American literature. I had the opportunity to recommend books to people that they had not read or heard of. And and they were really, really appreciative. Um, the one thing that that's true, and you probably experienced this as well, is that the people with the, the least amount of, of um, exposure... They are so grateful when you introduce them to something else. You know, they're so like, wow, I didn't, I didn't even know, like, I could read a book by a black woman. They're so grateful. And it's not just black people. It's white people as well. They are so grateful when you introduce them to a new writer, you know, um, then they want to come back and they want to get all the books by that person. <laughs> that's like the best feeling as a librarian. That's that when you, when you nail it, that's just the best. So beyond um, your, obviously your work with Reader's Advisory and with African-American literature or literature by black authors, 
can you tell us more about other initiatives you've been involved in, um, whether it's a formal initiative or program or, you know, professional development um, or, you know, informally how you're building that aspect of your collection at Mitchell? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Um, I, I guess the, the, the program that has lasted the longest, I started in 2015 when I was at Wilson and the the group still meets at Wilson is the Urban Life Experience book discussion series. And um, we read a book. We meet once every six weeks or so and discuss the book. At the beginning of the year, um, I make the book list and Public Humanities at Yale, they've been gracious enough to supply the books for the year. Um, so it is my, my favorite thing. It's, it's my favorite thing in the world. But just recently here at Mitchell, I started something called the Book Lover's Circle. And this is once a month. The first Thursday of the month is mostly for retired people because we meet Thursday morning at 10 o'clock. Um, we sit in a circle and we just talk about a book that we read. No set conversation, no set text. I am amazed by what these people have read. As a matter of fact, I, I never read graphic novels. And um, I think the first person who spoke told me about a graphic novel that he read. And I'll, uh, you're probably familiar with it? Oh, Persepolis. Are you familiar with it? Yes, it was an assigned, uh, it was an assigned text when I used to be a school librarian. I forget which grade, but um, it was assigned by the English class. It's such a great book. It's amazing. So this was, look, this is from a patron. This is not a library book. The patron bought it to me so I could read it. Um, I also read this one, Fun Home. Oh, Fun Home is amazing. Never read a graphic novel in my life. And now I've read two in the last month. Look at I you, Marion. Uh, Persepolis 2 out the library, which was amazing. Um, so these people, they, I really thought when I started it that everybody was going to come in and talk about the thrillers. You know, the, the Baldacci and, and, and the Patterson. and But they actually read a lot, a lot, a lot of nonfiction. Two different people read Bury My Heart and Wounded Knee. But I, I'm just amazed by the nonfiction, the graphic novels. So I'm learning so much more about literature. Because the one thing I notice is that when you have a, a niche that you're interested in, a lot of times you only read that. So having a book lover circle, and it's only like eight of us, you know, we meet for an hour from 10 to 11, is really eye-opening, and we get to expose each other to a lot of works. It sounds like it's a group that uh, pushes themselves with what they read, and, and like you said, you know, Fun Home, it may have pictures, that is not an easy book, that is very heavy Persepolis as well. And it really sounds like there, I mean, bury my heart at wounded knee. That is about as, you know, dense as you can get. And <laughs> so, the, and that's amazing. And that folks are, are seeking these things out that challenge them, their, their perspective and worldview. Absolutely. Um, do you have other, I know you're involved with the state CT reads or, you know, program. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? We just had our, um, Arthur interviews on Friday and I interviewed Dr. Daniel Black. He wrote a book called Don't Cry For Me. Everybody in the world should read this book. Look, I told him, I said, this book should be a movie. 
it really should be a movie. Look, I even know the actor that I think should play the father. <laughs> Who? Which actor? The actor is um, Danny Glover. Oh, perfect. He would yeah. be amazing as the father. Yeah. He's got the look, the scruffy beard, everything. He, in my mind, that's who I'm picturing while I'm reading. I mean, it's amazing. It's so good. And Dr. Black was amazing. Um, if your listeners want to tune in, it's recorded. So you can just look up All CT Reads 2024. We'll, we'll also link it in the podcast description so listeners can go can go and, and watch the interview. Um, yeah, All CT Reads. And you were involved last year as well, I believe. Third year. This was my third year. So you only get to be on the committee for three years. Oh. So, you know, when it's time to read the books, because usually there's a pretty long list, I'm like, oh, why am I doing this? But that also exposes me to books that I wouldn't have known. Um, and it's so much fun. So I was really thinking to myself, how can I, how can I con my way back into, um, to getting called next year? (laughs) I've done it for three years. Mm -hmm. And so it sounds like, you know, your passion, which is the reading, the literature, the reader's advisory specifically the African-American literature, which you got to, you know, create the formal urban life experience group and at Wilson, um, you're able to still maintain that aspect of the job of being a a librarian, you know, um, and it sounds like to balance out some of this day-to-day work that is essentially social services that, you know, we, you do every single day. You know, and, 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 you know, you, you feel good coming to work, you know, when it, and it's enough variety to make it interesting every day. You're not doing the same dull job every day. It's, it's just between the books, between the people, between the staff, between going downtown on Fridays. Um, it keeps you going. It just keeps you going. You know, you look forward to coming to work. Yeah, that's awesome. And so, um, I, this question stems from, I, I recently, uh, gave a tour of the library to the Hamden Youth Ambassadors, which is a group of, of teenagers who, um, you know, they get accepted into the, this program through the town's, um, youth services department and they go to different town departments, different organizations, and learn about different types of careers. So I, I essentially talk to them about being library workers, all the different types of jobs of of working in libraries. Um, and so, it, you know, you spoke about when you, you started, and it, it, this was a second career for you, um, and you spoke about, you know, Diane kind of being, you know, your mentor and your cohort uh, when you were in school and, and um, getting started. Do you have anything you want to say to young people who might be wor- considering working in libraries or um, be going and getting their MLS and becoming librarians? I, 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 I don't know. This may sound cliche ish, but um, the way that I was able to build my career was just by following my own interests. Um, I think whatever you bring, whatever it is that you do, that's your passion. I don't know if you remember Haley, Haley Grunlow. Yes. Her passion was art. 
she built her career, even though you have to do everything, she was able to use her art to bring programming, to bring um, posters that she designed. And if you bring your own personality, your own passions, you can make it work for you. It will work for you. Um, you know, I always liked reading. I always liked books by, by African-American authors. And, and I was able to bring that. And it, and it works for me. So I think my my last, yeah, my last formal question um, is, you know, you spoke about literature. So uh, now that I have you, um, do you want to give us some recommendations, particularly of black authors? I know that's your passion, African-American literature um, or stories, whether they're new or old, whatever ages, I, I don't care. Anything you want to tell our audience about that you just think, you know, you spoke about Don't Cry For Me, like you said, the one of the all CT reads. Um, but any others you just want to, because it's the best thing is talking about books. My favorite book of all time, and I read it about once every seven years, once I'm due to read it again, um, is Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison. Um, I also like a, a book called Brother by David Chariandri. He is in Canada. He's a Canadian author. Um, amazing book, again. Um, there's a lot of African women writers that I really like now. Um, one is Essie Edigen. Um, she wrote Washington Black. I love that. I love that book. I say... I always pitch it as it's Charles Dickens, like style writing by a black woman and better. That's how I pitch it to people. It's like an adventure story. I love it so much. Oh my God. That book is amazing. It's amazing. Another African woman named Chibundu Onuzo, she wrote a book called um, Sankofa. Everybody in the world should read this. Look, you open the floodgate. <laughs> Well, I'll put, what I'll do is I'll put together a, you know, a, a recommendation list based on, yeah. And, um, Poet no, this X is a great team book. Say it again. Poet X. Okay. Yeah. That's a great team book. And I just read another team book and, um, is written by a person who's, um, indigenous, Canadian indigenous, um, the, the Marrow Thieves. Oh yeah. Are you familiar with the Marrow Thieves? That was a really good book. Oh, the final revival of Opal and Nev. I think of everything that I just named. You should read that one first. Okay. I'm starring it now. The story is so amazing. Some people who read it said, I couldn't get through it because I had to keep going back to old tapes of the Dick Cavett show and, and newspapers from 1967 to see if this really happened, because so much of it did really happen. But Opal and Nev are characters, fictional characters. It's amazing. These are amazing recommendations. And what we'll do for listeners is we'll we'll put together a list and we'll link it in in the um, the episode description so folks can read what Marion reads. Yes, read what Marion reads. You'll be reading all the time. <laughs> um, do you have anything else you know that you were hoping to talk about that we didn't cover any I guess final thoughts or musings or anything like that I can't think of anything I think that um, 
I think we've covered a lot. Yeah, I think so too. So Marion, thank you so much for joining with me today. Thank you for thinking of me to do this. The first person I thought of. Um, <laughs> and uh, we, we are just so grateful and um, excited to, you know, have folks of Hamden, but hopefully folks of New Haven and elsewhere just learn more about what you bring to this career and this profession, which for even those of us who are librarians is often misunderstood. And and the perspective and experience you bring, what you've done for the community in New Haven in a bunch of different neighborhoods, you know, Mitchell's your home now, but you've impacted people all over the city. And it's amazing work. And we're just really grateful to have you today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great rest of the day. Hope it goes smooth. Bye, Marion. Thank you. Take care now. Bye. Bye. Okay. So, Diane, um, would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners and telling us a bit about your current library job? So, my name is Diane X. Brown. I'm branch manager of Willis K. Stetson Branch Library. It's one of five branches of the New Haven Free Public Library System. And I've been a branch manager um, at Stetson about 20 years. Okay. And can you tell us about how you decided to work in libraries? The former library director, Mr. James C. Wellborn, um, at the time I was working for, um, I was working for the city of New Haven. I was a pre-employment training instructor and um I was working that job and I wanted to go back to school and get another degree and I wanted to do some type of another career, which would be like, well, going on my fourth or fifth career, but I, I wanted to do something that was anything that was working with the public or helping people. So I met with Mr. James Well Wellborn in 2000, 2001 and I, um, two, something like that. And, um, I met with him. And after having a conversation with him for an hour in his office downtown at the main library, Ives Branch, he convinced me that I wanted to go to school to become a librarian. He gave me some information, told me to apply for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation Fellowship Award. I applied. I wrote, I believe it was a 500-word essay, why I wanted to be a librarian. And if I was chosen, the only stipulation was that I would remain in New Haven and be a librarian for three to five years. That was my commitment. So I wrote my essay and I received a response and the response was yes. So uh, my school, my master's degree in information technology and library sciences was paid in full. I received a stipend for gas, books, um, and I got laid off at the same time from the city because the job I had was a special funded job. So it was just meant to be. It all happened within 60 days of one another. So I collected unemployment at the time you could collect for a year. I collected unemployment for a year and I went to Southern Connecticut State University and I completed my M M master's degree in library sciences, 36 credits in one year. I went to school full time and I got called to the library to take a job as a young adult librarian. I was the first young adult librarian for the New Haven Free Public Library System, the first official title. And um, I took that position during my last semester of school. So I was working full time and I had to complete that remaining 18 credits. Um, it was it was grueling. 
when I look back now, I don't, I don't know how I did it. I just, I just took not even a day at a time, one moment at a time. Mm-hmm. And I completed and I went on to be the young adult librarian. And uh, after I finished doing that for a short period of time, a few years, the former director or former branch manager of Stetson Branch Library, who I'm the manager now, she wanted to go into another position. She no longer wanted to be a branch manager. And the um, board made uh, an executive decision and they promoted me to branch manager of Stetson. And that's where I've been ever since. Um, thank you so much. That was such a good and thorough answer. Can you tell us a little bit about what libraries f- were for you growing up? Very interesting. So Willis K. Stetson was the first professional librarian to work in New Haven. That That's the first Stetson branch is named after Willis K. Stetson. He's the first person to actually have a degree. Um, at that time, what they would call a degree in library sciences. Willis K. Stetson Branch Library, there's a little quick little history. Um, the first library, which ended up being Stetson, was the Dixel Branch Library, which was located on Division Street in New Haven and a home owned by Winchester Gun Factory. So Winchester Gun Factory had purchased a lot of the homes around the factory for uh, individuals coming into work, and those would be the homes that they would lease out or rent out to their families, who had people who were working factory have families. My mother actually worked at Winchester Factory. I also grew up on Division Street. The first Dixwell branch, which ended up being Stetson, was founded in a house at 213 Division Street. I had a son when I was young. I raised my son across the street from my mother's house at 215 Division Street. Oh, my God. But when I was, it's amazing. So, when, but when I grew up, Stetson Branch Library left that house on Division Street. Um, I think, I believe, uh, probably in the, in the, in the 60s, something like that. And it ended up in a Carnegie building, which is at the corner of Dixel Avenue and Thompson Street. And it moved from there up to Dixwell Avenue in the plaza where I was a former branch manager. And now we're across the street on this side of the street with a new branch. Now, another interesting piece is the Carnegie building is still there. And the minister, it's a church now. The minister of that church, Mr. Robert Kinney, formerly worked for the state library. He's a library. Oh my God. <laughs> and now he works here for the New Haven Free Public Library as an administrator over the branches. And he's now my boss. So it's, it's, it reads like a book. It's, it's a true story. Wow. All a true story. So now he's overseeing Stetson Branch Library underneath his responsibilities. And his, his church is located in the Carnegie Building, the first self-standing Carnegie building, one of them in New Haven for one of the New Haven Free Public Library branches. True story. That is... Can't make it up. No. (laughs) And my follow-up question is going to be, were your experiences positive? And I think you kind of already answered that, but... Yeah, it's it's been a road. You know, I I can say uh, growing up at Stetson Branch Library when I was a little girl, when it was located in the Carnegie building... It was like two blocks away from my home. 
Um, one of the things that I wanted to do when I became a librarian um, is when you go to library school, one of the things that they tell you, it's kind of like an unspoken oath. You should be committed to helping anybody, but you particularly should be committed to working with the service area that your location sits in. So I was fortunate enough that I my service area is Dixwell Newhallville, which is where I grew up at. So it was, it was a plus for me. It didn't always make it easy because I still had to prove myself, even though I come from those neighborhoods. But the key thing was for me was to provide services, uh, information, programming, and services that would speak to the needs of the community. Now, I'm 66 years old. When I grew up, I didn't have books with children of color that reflected me in any way. There were no authors. There were no books. There were no programs. Um, we had some programs, I remember, coming up where individuals from the community that looked like me would come in and do little black history things and little talks. But basically, none of it was geared toward my race, my culture. And at the time I grew up, the neighborhood was transitioning into an African-American hub um, at that time. So one of my goals when I became the branch manager at Stetson is that I wanted the collection and the program to reflect the community. So now here I sit um, in this new library coming from the former library across the street. And I thank my children's librarian, Philip Modine, who doesn't look like me, but he respects and he understands the population that we serve. We have one of the largest collections of African diaspora books. We can match up with anybody in Connecticut and beyond. And we have we have a dynamic collection that's inclusive of teen, adults, teens, and children, teaching children about the civil rights movement. We have board books about the civil rights movement. So, and our programming reflects what people want in the community. So the programming that Philip does, who's the children's librarian, the programming that Brooke um, Jones does, she's the young adult librarian. And the programming that I present to the adults is all coming from the desires of the community. That's why the programs are so successful because we include the community in our thought and thinking process and our planning process. And we do a lot of programs in collaboration with individuals from the community. So, so we've been, we are an award-winning branch. Yeah. And that was my next question was, um, can you tell our audience or our listeners um, about some of these initiatives and programs? You've done incredible things. So I, it, we'd be here for days, but I know you have so many you could highlight. And I'd love if you spoke to a couple specifically. We'll go back to 2015 when I won the I Love My Librarian Award from the American Library Association and the Carnegie Corporation. That was a collaboration um, because we didn't have, now we have a budget that we can, each branch now has a budget that we can actually plan programs. But at the time, we didn't have a line item on the general budget of the library for us to per se, you have this amount of money to do programs. So we would have to basically ask for donations or ask people from the community to come in and do programs. So I created um, a, a series called Teach Them While They're Young. So we had someone come in and do chess club. We had a cooking class. 
We had an Africa's Me class, which taught you about your culture and your race. And there was a couple of other things that we did. And that was the Teach Them While They're Young series. And that was uh, presented to this I Love My Librarian <clears throat> a committee. And, and that year, um, I was awarded that award from the Carnegie Corporation and the American Library Association in 2015. And it was an honor. And I say I didn't do that alone. I did that with my staff. Yeah, and just for our listeners, the New Haven Free Public Library System, yes, there's the big library downtown, but there's these four branches, and they're so different and unique to their neighborhoods. And you've we've been talking about this, but not maybe directly. Stetson is New Haven, but Stetson is Dixwell and New Hallville. Like, that is Stetson. And your programs, you were doing those out of old Stetson and doing all these initiatives and building your collection for years and years. But would you mind telling our listeners about this incredible accomplishment, the new building, the new library, and, and having that alignment between the services, the materials, and the collection with the facility? The Dixwell Community House which sits on the side where I'm not now. I'm not in the Q House. I'm the anchor to the Q House. We sit on the corner of Dixwell Avenue and Foot Street. The Q House is on is behind me and on the side of me um, in that space. Um, what happened was for years they were trying to get the Dixwell Q House torn down and rebuilt for years, 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 years. It didn't happen. So under former Mayor Tony Harp, Tony Harp, um, in a committee, there was uh, concerned citizens for Dixwell. They started having meetings, and Tony Hart, coming to mayor, was on her platform when she ran. She said, I will work endlessly to build a new Dixwell community house. So as that was going on, she met with myself and the former library director and said, um, we would like to build across the street a new Q house, but we would like Stetson Library to be an anchor to that building. And um, I have mixed emotions, still somewhat have mixed emotions. I believe libraries should be self-standing buildings. That's just my personal preference. Mm -hmm. But it was an opportunity to get us a new branch because we were in a plaza that was run down. And we were probably the best upkept space in the entire Dixwell Plaza. We sat right in the middle of the plaza. Mm -hmm. And I did everything that I possibly could to maintain that space and keep it open and keep it clean for the community to come in to, for it to be a library. Um, and we worked wonders in that little small space. It was the smallest branch of the New York Free Public Library System probably the smallest library, one of the smallest libraries in the world, but it was really like one big room with a couple of rooms off to the side. So when that came on the table, um, I said to Mayor Hart, former Mayor Hart, that I envisioned the new Stetson Library being a baby Schomburg, Schomburg Institute. I didn't want it to just be a library. I wanted more programming and I wanted to have space, cultural arts programming, some uh, wanted to be able to display art and all those kinds of things. And she, she liked the idea. So with that being said, I was also very fortunate. The former library director, Martha Brogan, she came in 
And uh, it was it's really unheard of that a library director would actually allow a branch manager or any staff person to really help take the lead on building a new structure for the system. Because typically library library directors like that to be a part of their legacy. Many of mm-hmm. them build a, build the library like Mr. Wellborn did. He built Wilson Branch Library. And then not long after that, well, in Mr. Wellborn's case, he passed away. But typically not long after that, they typically retire. That's the end of their journey. They left a legacy. Well, I'm very fortunate um, that Martha shared that with me and allowed me as not just a branch manager of Stetson, but a leader in the Dixwell Newhallville communities. She allowed me to be a part of that from the beginning to the end. She allowed me to sit at the table to pick the colors, the furniture, um, the layout. Um, that's unheard of. You can talk to librarians across the country and they will tell you that they were not involved in the process of a new branch that was being built that they were going to be managing. It's not to say that I liked every single detail, but at least I was given enough respect and some of what I wanted was put in that proposal and actually came to life. So that's how we got here. Um, it was a long time coming. COVID came. We shut down for COVID. Myself and Philip Modine, my children's librarian, we were the first two back in the New Haven Free Public Library System. Former library director John Jessen, who was once one of my employees, he was a former director. He passed away. Um, but prior to him passing away, um, several months um, before that, he gave Philip and I permission to go back into the old Stetson Library and work on opposite ends of the branch, masked up. Um, we looked like we were in an operating room, but we were all masked up. And he said, you can go in because we had over $60,000 budget that we had to revamp the entire collection, weed the collection, go through book by book, 30-something thousand, whatever books it was, 25,000 books, pick what we wanted, what we didn't want, what we were going to upgrade from children's, from board books, all the way up to reference books, the entire library space. Most of that was Philip and I. We had a few staff that was here and there, but for the most of it, Philip and I created all those lists and we did it between going in that space during COVID and doing it at home. So when it was time to order the collection, when it was time to order, those books could be delivered into the new space in a timely fashion and then take the books and get them on the shelf for opening day. So out of my entire library career, that's the most thing that I'm proud of. Mm-hmm. And I would say, I think at this point, if I could speak for Philip, outside of him doing the beautiful flyers and children's programs and the networking that he's done over the years. I'm proud of him for that because once you learn something, I tell people, you can't take that away. You can, he can, no one can ever tell him that he does not know how to build a collection of books because he did. And we didn't have anyone teaching us how to do it. We Googled a couple of things and looked at a couple of things. I called a few people, but we figured it out on our own and we did it. And now here in this location, we went from an African di- African-American collection. Now it's called the African Diaspora Collection because every book that's black 
the people are not the author and or the book is not is not necessarily African American. African diaspora can be Haitian. It can be anybody who considers themselves to be black. So that's why it's called the African Diaspora co- co- Collection. So yeah, so that's the collection that we have here now, um, and it's a beautiful collection. It is the first time I went to Stetson. Well, one, it was so new that uh, obviously that jumped out, but what jumped out to me were the books and the art and the art is just incredible. Would you mind telling our listeners about a couple of the artists that you've had displayed that are there permanently, which, whatever you want to speak to the most? So our artists, what we call in residence would be Catro Storm. We have some of his large pieces, um, life-size pieces um, here um, on loan indefinitely. Catro and I became like big sister, little brother, because some of his artwork started disappearing. Um, you know, artists, you know, typically like to do their art. A lot of them don't typically like to do the business end of things. So I made a proposal when we were across the street. Why don't you hang some of your artwork here at Stetson? That way we don't have to worry about where it is. Because if somebody can get past us and take these life-size pieces out, then there's a problem. So he started hanging his artwork and the former Stetson and the community loved it. Large life-size pieces of, of musicians and, and people, things, people that the community could relate to. So when we moved across the street, we had up at the upper level, there's this big, huge space going around. The classroom is all free wall. And we actually put his artwork on there, which just so happened to fit perfectly. It wasn't in the original plans. And then we have the Calvin Vectin um, photograph series of the Harlem Renaissance photographs are hanging on the front wall. That was a part of my quote unquote baby Schomburg. So when you get off the elevator on the second level, when the doors open, you see all these photographs on the wall of a little bit of Ella Fitzgerald. Um, it's a little bit of every but Ruby D. Um, uh, Thurgood Marshall. There's a little bit of everybody, and there's a description underneath. And Philip, children's librarian, he actually made a brochure that will tell you about each one of these photos. And he also made a brochure about the large pieces of artwork that Catro Storm has on the walls. I also have um, a piece now, and looking to do more piece. Shonda Holloway actually has a piece that she donated to Stetson Libraries, a permanent piece upstairs that um, goes with the decor. Um, and Yale Peabody Museum donated some artifacts that you will see hanging on the wall, some wall hangings, tapestries, some baskets, some statues, and some other um, African artifacts, shields that were donated by Yale Peabody Museum when they shut down a few years ago for their renovation. Um, the director um, donated those from the gift shop, and those are permanent donation to Stetson Library. So um, I'm not an artist, but um, art art does a lot for a lot of people. Art makes the space feel like home. It ma- it, it fills the space with culture, um, with without words. You know, it's it's there. Um, it's important for me as a black person as an African-American woman, that when people come into this space, 
that they're reflected in everything they see, the artwork, the books, the videos, the programs. Because if I was in an all-Hispanic or a Spanish-speaking neighborhood, that's what it would be. Even though I'm, I don't speak Spanish well and I'm not of Latina descent, if I was a branch manager in a neighborhood, then I would have to be reaching out to the community and everything that I have will be reflective of that culture because yeah. that's what it should be. So when children Look. walk into Stetson on the children's floor, Philip has all the everything on display. Children can see things from little babies being held in, a, in an adult arm. They can see photos that look like them. That's important. I didn't have that as a little girl growing up. So for me, uh, imagery is everything. You don't have to like the people in the image, but you know that person looks like you. And that's a really wonderful tie back to kind of what we were talking about in the beginning of our conversation about your experiences, which are so deep with growing up with libraries because of your growing up in the neighborhood, growing up with Stetson. But you also spoke to how you didn't see yourself there. You use the library, but it wasn't yours. And libraries belong to their patrons, to their neighborhoods, to their communities. And because you've had such a long and amazing career, and now you're working with and mentoring so many, you know, mid-career librarians, newer librarians, or people who are starting out as a librarian in their, their second career, or folks who are working in libraries not who aren't librarians. Do you have philosophies you like to pass down or words of wisdom or lessons or anything like that? What I would like to say for anyone, I, and, I, and I have, I've mentored librarians of all colors, races, genders, know that, you know, if there's anyone out there listening that wants to be a librarian, I'm open. You can come see me, whatever I can do, whatever I can teach you. People think just because I'm black and, I'm, and I service a black community that I can't do anything else. I'm a librarian. I can do it all. I've been around long enough. I, there's no reason why I should not be able to because I can't. I've worked in every department in the Free Public Library System. I've worked in cataloging, adult services, children's services, reference. I've worked business department. I've worked in every branch in this system. And I've been around a long time. And what I don't know, I know people who can show you what you're trying to know. I think for me, the best advice I can give if you want to work in a public library, you want to be a librarian, think of people and how are you able, are you willing to learn to be with the public? And if you're not comfortable with you, what it is, is you don't have to, I can't teach my personality. I can teach you how to be a librarian, but you have to be willing to be with the public. So that's something that's, and I have had librarians come to me say, how do I get myself comfortable? Now, if you want to be comfortable and learn, that's totally different than, oh, I don't want to do that. I just want to be a librarian. So there's, there's a difference. And then there's different types of libraries. You might want to be a law librarian. We got to deal with attorneys. You can be a librarian. You could be a librarian in the music industry where you digital, you catalog music. There's all types of librarians. But if you're going to be a public librarian in a public in a city like New Haven with the demographic like New Haven, you're going to have to like black, white, gray, blue, pink, LGBTQ. You're going to have to have respect. You don't have to like everybody, but you're going to have to have a certain level of respect 
for everybody that walks in that door. You can't say, oh, I don't like this kind of a person or I don't like that kind of person. No, you, it, it doesn't work that way. You're not going to be effective if you try. Um, so you have to have a willingness. I don't have to understand everybody that comes in the door. And guess what? Sometimes people come in the door. Maybe I may not be the best person to work with this person. Maybe someone else on my staff. I'm big enough and professional enough to say, you know what? This is not the person for me to work with. Maybe this, maybe I got a, someone on my staff that can better help you out. And, there, and there's nothing wrong with that. So if you want to be work on a public library, Inner city public librarian is different than being in the suburbs. It's a different animal. I'm not saying one's right and one's wrong. You have drug issues and suburban libraries, just like you have in inner city libraries. You have teens that are disruptive and suburban librarians, just like inner city libraries. But what you have in inner city libraries is a diverse group of people that need various things, maybe something printed, maybe looking for a job, maybe trying to learn a skill, maybe just looking for a safe space because it's not safe at home right now. So being in public service in the public library in the inner city, it's all that. Most libraries across the country, public libraries are warming centers. Which means anybody that's outdoors and has nowhere to go, whether they will, maybe their, 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 their apartment, maybe they have an apartment, but they don't have enough heat. Being a warming center means you're going to get a little bit of everybody that's going to come in. Now, I'm not going to say that's the easiest thing to work with because it's not. I'm working with that now. I have a population of individuals that are hard, that, that are down on their luck right now. They need a lot of resources. Library administration right now for New Haven is working with different departments across the city for us to provide more services for these individuals. But in the meantime, I as a branch manager have to figure out space and respect between a children's population, little children who are on the first floor, teen and young adults and adults up on the second level. But I have a population of people that come in every day because this is where they're safe at for this particular time. They're black, they're white, they're Latina, okay? They're LGBTQ, they're men, they're women. Some have substance abuse, some have mental health issues that I perceive. I'm not saying that they do, but I perceive that they do. So trying to strike that balance between all the different populations that come in it's, it's It could be taxing on the staff, but if you're going to work on a public library in the inner city public library, know that this is some of the stuff that you're going to have to deal with. And no one has the answer. You just got to kind of go one day at a time and yeah. figure it out. So I just want people to be aware of, you know, there's nowhere to run and hide. At least on my team, you can't go nowhere in the library and hide. You're going to come out and we're going to figure it out together because I don't have all the answers. But, you know, I talk to my staff about things all the time. What do you think that we should do about this situation? Or do you have an idea? That's the second piece. You work in a public library, you got to be a team player. It, it, it's, yeah. you, you gotta, it's not, it just can't be the manager just saying, this is what you're going to do. And if you don't do it this way, it's right or it's wrong. No, 
I'm a team player. I like my staff to come and give me ideas. And, and, and I'm not a micromanager. You got an idea? Let's do it. As long as it follows the rules of the library, if we do it and it doesn't work, well, then we just, you know, I have, I have live music in here. I have African drumming. Right now we have the Schubert Theater upstairs doing a program that's connected to the, um, to the, um, Avenelli. A dance group. So we have a, a local dancer who's upstairs right now. And I can hear him a little bit from where I'm sitting in my office. They're upstairs dancing. Why not? Because libraries are not just libraries. They're also double as community centers now across the country, not just Connecticut, across the country. So being a librarian is more than what they teach you in most library schools. I can tell you that. When I was a professor of library sciences at Southern Connecticut, that's one of the things that I taught people. Um, many library schools, you got li- you got professors that are teaching from a book that have never been in the field. It's also a problem. If you want to be a librarian, get out and go to your local library or different types of libraries. Come to Stetson and look at different types of libraries and actually see what's going on. The only way you could really learn to be a librarian is you need to be in a library because library school is just on paper. But when you actually get out in the field, there's so much more that you're not being taught. I I can testify to that from being a student and being a professor. And I think, you know, we were saying about the challenges and this is a community forward job and and that's not emphasized enough in the education and so like but the reward with is huge like your program right now that's happening upstairs it's for me at least that makes every single difficult interaction or you know moment when you're suspecting drug abuse in the bathroom or or whatever's going on it makes these moments where you have successful programs or you helped somebody fax something they've been desperately trying to get to, so, to social security or or whatever you know, we it makes have, it huge you know, we have a stay and play program that my children's librarian does he does one on Mondays from 10 to 11:30 and he added one Saturday 10 to 11:30 when i tell you these stay and play programs look like the united nations I mean, we have families that come in that can't even speak English, but all children understand play. He does a story time and then it's open play. And these children of all ages, little ones, ethnicities, races, interacting with one another, parents sitting down. And I'm sure no one's told me that, but I'm sure for some of these parents, it's their first time interacting with a particular race or a particular ethnicity. And the parents are modeling the behavior for the children. You know, I went to see Ruby Bridges the other night at Woolsey Hall, and she said something very dynamic. She said, children are born innocent. We teach them this racism and all this other stuff. But when I look today at all these children that were playing and the parents all just sitting on a rug, everybody being at the same level. So, so that means something in itself. Nobody over anybody, everybody just sitting on the ground with their children and a little black child playing with a white child, playing with a Mexican child, playing with a child that, that's white, but speaking another language. Um, and, and, and Chinese children. It's just amazing to see this in this space 
on Dixwell Avenue in a predominantly African-American neighborhood. That's public libraries. And that would not happen if we didn't advocate for that. If we weren't reaching for that. I'm not, I'm not expecting my programs to be attended by all African American. It's just the focus because this is a community we're in. But African diaspora history is, it's, it's history. It's sad that we have to say that it's something separate, but it's history that we should be, should have learned right along with world history. So, you know, now we're getting ready to celebrate Black History Month. I don't expect my programs to have all black people. I want people that don't look like me to come and learn about my culture and my race. So that's important. So, you know, like I said, I think the big thing you said it, it's important for people to know that we're public facing, that when you, you want to be a public librarian, you will be dealing with the public. Even if you're an administrator, you still going to have to tell your branch manager and other people how to deal with the public because they're going to come to you when they have problems. And I think what you said about it's the community. I mean, I, so I've already inter- interviewed Marion and you and Marion are both African-American women who are both incredible branch, branch managers and run these amazing, dynamic, busy, rich branches. And they're completely different. You have different communities who have different needs and different staff and different personal interests, different everything. And so they're not the same and they shouldn't be the same because that's not one that wouldn't be serving the communities, those neighborhoods. And speaking of, you know, and that's another thing, librarians of color, very few black librarians across the country, let alone Spanish speaking. So we don't, we're, we're very rare. And in this system now I have myself, Marion Huggins, Robert Kinney from the state library and Louise Chavez Pamel who is biracial, um, Latina, African-American. So even though a lot of people say, well, you got more in our system than we do, we're still not where we should be. And a lot of that is because librarianship is not a career that's actually, there's no one really advocating for it or really pushing for it. Um, because, and then you go, you got to go to school. And so I'm, I'm t- I've been talking to quite a few people now instead of becoming teachers now to think about becoming librarians instead of teachers because librarians are teachers. People don't look at it that way, but that's, you know, librarians have access to the knowledge and part of their role and their responsibility is to get that knowledge out to the community and to the people. That's an educator. That's a teacher. You're teaching. Teaching somebody how to use technology tools. You're teaching someone how to print something. You're teaching someone how to get on a computer. You're teaching somebody something by giving a program. We have plenty of programs here. We, you know, we bring people in to teach you how to buy a home. You know, we, we, how, how, how do you fix your finances? You know, all those kinds of things. So it's a good job. I love what I do. I wouldn't do anything different. Um, I'm lucky that this is like a third or maybe fourth career for me. But um, I'm lucky um, to be here. And uh, people ask me, when am I going to retire? I, I, I don't know. Maybe I'll just be right here till I just can't do it no more. <laughs> I don't know. I like what I do. I've been here so long. It feels like home. I leave one home. I leave my home in Hamden and I come here and this is like my second home. Yeah. I have one last question for you because it's we're librarians. 
So I wanted to just end asking you for book books you love, books you recommend to patrons, uh, books you've run book clubs for, story time books you've done in the past, anything you want to speak to. There's so many books over here. I can't even. Wow. One of my favorite books is not even a black book. One of my favorite books is The Gibbon Tree. Love that book. The story. The story of The Giving Tree. That story just touches me. I like Angela Davis. I grew up in New Haven in the 60s and during the Black Panther movement, my family was very much involved. I like reading anything from the former Panther women. Mm-hmm. Elaine Brown, uh, Angela Davis. I like reading those things. And even today, things that they're doing, the transformation that they've gone through as Black women, um, still advocating for civil rights, for justice, for women's rights. I'm not really a fiction reader. I like biographies and I like black history. That's my thing. And I love children's books. I love the children's books that Philip gets, you know, the children's books with, um, they're all around me right now with, with, with black covers on them and, it, and it's very few words, but I just like the power of the images of the books that he chooses. So you don't have to be of a certain color or persuasion to understand it. You know, I appreciate LGBTQ books. I'm not of that community, but people of that community deserve books that reflect them and who they are. And so, and so I respect that. I'm respectful of that. So I just like to have books in a space where everybody can feel comfortable and there's something for everybody. It shouldn't be, oh, there's not enough of this or there's not enough of that. And now we have authors, LGBTQ authors. We have more black authors. We have more, uh, there's more authors of varying diverse, diverse backgrounds now than what even 20 years ago when I became a librarian. Now there's so many black books still all over. Now I can, now I can pick and choose before it, you, you could pick, but there wasn't a heck of a lot to choose from. But now there are black books by black people. And that's a difference. And no disrespect to anyone, but uh, years ago, black books by people that, that were not black people doing research. It's a different view. It's a different perspective. How can I write about, how can I write a book about being from the LGBTQ community? I've just done research and interviewed people. That's not me. I can't speak from firsthand. I can't even look at the research in a different way because I'm doing it differently. So when I try to order books, I try to order books about black people by black people. If I'm going to order books from the LGBTQ community, I would like it to be someone from the LGBTQ community or someone in, or someone that's a part of that writing, that story. Um, so, so those things are very important for me, but I think, um, I, I don't have a lot of, I can't per se favorite books, but my favorite um, genre is uh, to black history and I love biographies about anybody I like reading people's story that they told I, I don't I don't want preempt I don't want what somebody no I want you to tell me your story I want to know your story firsthand that's important for me thank you so much Diane and for sharing just one piece of your story with us the story of Stetson I know it's way longer there's so much we like you said I can't take up your entire day but thank you for everything for sharing yourself with our listeners and with me 
All right. Bye, Diane. That's all we have for you this month on the podcast. We'll see you next time.